you probably know, we've been journeying, or beginning the journey, actually. We're only at the end of chapter 2, but through the book of Exodus. So that is where we will be again this morning. Please open your Bibles there to the end of chapter 2 in the book of Exodus. And again, kind of the two big ideas that we have said so far as background for the book is that God has a plan of redemption that He's sovereignly working out. And that number two is that that plan often isn't what exactly what we think it will be. And certainly it wasn't that way for the people of Israel, I don't imagine. Again, uh, Exodus 2, we'll be picking up in verse 23, just three verses. Um, I have the privilege of just preaching on three verses this morning. Sometimes that's a little bit easier um, than larger texts. But um, Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, we thank you for its truth. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time in it now examining it and determining what it is it's saying to us. We thank you that you do reveal yourself to us through your word. This is not something that you had to do, but you chose to do so because you desired to redeem us back to yourself that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but that we would have new life in Christ. We thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you for that message that we see there, and we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts to really see you and to see your redemption in the scriptures. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The most gut-wrenching sound I've ever heard, this lady said, is that of silence in a ward full of children in an orphanage. This was said by a social work professor in England who was an expert in her field. She said this because she knows that crying for an infant was designed to be part of a relationship. Infants weren't designed by God to cry in a vacuum. They were designed to cry in an environment where someone who loves them can respond to them attentively to love them and to care for them. And anyone who has had a child knows the stress and difficulty that can be accompanied by much crying. But again, even worse, even more gut-wrenching is when there is, there is no crying because an infant has learned that no one will respond. They've learned that no one cares for them. A baby's natural reaction is to cry when she is hungry, tired, or not feeling well. Of course, it's the only way they can communicate their needs. And a parent's natural reaction to a baby's cry is to lovingly respond, to meet the child's needs by feeding the child, helping them sleep, etc. And of course, this is normally done at a costly personal sacrifice by the parent. It's not easy being a parent. But as a baby turns into a small child, they start to become more independent. And although they will hopefully not still cry to communicate their basic needs, they will cry when they're hurt or afraid. And their crying is still very much part of a loving 
relationship. When one of my kids gets hurt, they cry. And while they're crying, they're running to me or my wife, and they're saying, Daddy, Mommy. And of course, we care for them. We hold them. We take care of their wounds. If there is one, we show concern. We wipe away their tears. We love them by God's grace. Their natural reaction is to cry because of the pain, but not just that. They also run towards someone who loves them to help them. Unfortunately, as kids grow into young adulthood, there often becomes this tendency to suppress emotions, to become cynical or jaded, you might say. We try not to cry, and we often disdain talking with someone about our wounds. We often try to take care of things ourselves, heal our own wounds, and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And part of that actually is our American individualistic culture. That's kind of the way that we think things are supposed to be, but doesn't match with the gospel, we have to ask. But as we do so, as we can tend to keep things in and to not go out to others with our wounds, part of our soul becomes dead and disconnected from God. Instead of hopeful, we can become despondent, apathetic, or cynical. Although we're no longer infants, we're still wired to cry out for help because we're human. It is good for our soul as emotional beings to cry out for help. We were made to give love and to receive love. We were made to have someone respond with care, comfort, and love. And today in our passage, we see that Israel does cry out to the Lord, and the Lord responds. But as we get into the text, we'll see that this seems to have been the first time that Israel truly cried out to the Lord for help, even though they'd been treated very cruelly for many years. And we share with the Israelites this tendency to not cry out for help, but instead to try to make things better ourselves or through other means other than God alone. But in our passage today, we'll see that we must cry out to God for help because God uses passionate, humble, desperate prayer to accomplish our redemption and bring about His purposes. So as we work our way through the passage, we'll see that we must cry out to God for three specific reasons. First, we must cry out to God for help because our cries go up to God and He hears. Second, we'll see that we must cry out to God for help because He remembers His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then third, we'll see that we must cry out to God for help because He knows and acts. So first, First point, we must cry out to God for help because our cries go up to God and He hears. Reading once again from verses 23 and 24, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. We're told that the king of Egypt died during those many days, uses that phrase, and the many days here refers to the time that Moses spent in Midian after he had fled from Egypt. And we know this because the immediately preceding passage here, um, verse 23, and before that, I don't know what that was, Um, (laughs) verse 23, or before verse 23, it tells about that period that Moses was in Midian. And then in Acts 7.30, Um, It says that he was in Midian 40 years. So it was during those many days that the king died. 
And additionally, Acts 7.23 tells us that Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and fled from Egypt. So Moses is 80 when God calls to him at the burning bush, and he soon after returns to Egypt. That's the passage we'll be in next week. But I mentioned these numbers to help us follow the plot through Exodus, and it also will give us more understanding into our passage today and Israel's crying out to God. So although 80 years had passed since the beginning of Exodus, or around about 80 years or so, um, Genesis 15, 13 through 14 tells us that Israel was afflicted actually for much longer. In Genesis 15, um, as the Lord is formalizing his covenant with Abraham, um, it says this, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So Israel's affliction in Egypt was for 400 years. There are a couple things going on here in relation to the timing that God chose to deliver Israel. First, his his timing was perfect concerning the judgment that he would execute on Egypt for their idolatry. God was not only rescuing Israel, but he was also judging Egypt for their sin. He delayed judgment toward Egypt in his patience. But Israel's deliverance was the perfect time to display his holiness and anger toward sin to Egypt. But in addition to the Egyptians, there was another group of people that God would execute his judgment upon as Israel left Egypt and went to obtain the promised land. A few verses later in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his people would come back to the land of Canaan in the fourth century after their slavery in Egypt. Then he says this, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was not only giving Israel the promised land, or he would do that after the Exodus, but he used them as an instrument of his judgment upon the people that would be driven out of the land for their sin. So God was again being patient this time, or he would be patient toward the Amorites, but their sin would become so great that God would no longer be able to be patient to tolerate their presence in the holy land of promise. So God is displaying his sovereignty over all nations through the exact timing that he chooses to deliver Israel. Judgment for sin upon Egypt, grace and love for Israel because he had chosen them, and then judgment upon the Amorites. And then the second point here concerning the timing has to do with God's personal relationship with Israel. Up to this point in the story, it isn't stated even once that Israel cried out to God for help. Chapters 1 and 2 give detail to how ruthlessly the Israelites or sorry, the Israelites were being treated, but it doesn't say that they cried out to God for help until this point in the story. I think this absence is glaring, and there is something for us to see and to learn from this. First, in our sin, we can become, we are self-reliant. We turn to other things to help rather than God. This is human sinful nature that we see again and again throughout Scripture. It was certainly at play, at least to some degree here, with the Israelites. Maybe the Israelites thought that the situation would get better over time, or maybe they thought if they worked hard enough that things would improve, or if there was a new king, 
that things would improve, but all these things didn't bring change. Or perhaps Israel had become hopeful because of how God worked through the midwives for their protection in chapter 1. Yet even though it provided a glimmer of hope, things didn't really change too much. Or maybe they had already come to place hope in Moses. Word had likely spread that one of their own people was a prince of Egypt. But as we saw last week, Moses' initial attempt out of his own power to rescue his people didn't turn out very well. Whatever the circumstances were, it seems clear that God was working and waiting for Israel to see that he alone rescues. Time, hard work, an Israelite Egyptian prince all could not save them. God alone saves. And indeed, that is what they would sing as they left Egypt. As part of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, 2, they would sing, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So God used 400 years of affliction through which Israel had falsely hoped and many other people or circumstances to save them to prove conclusively that he alone saves. And we need to know this today, that God alone saves. We need to identify Israel's hopeless situation in Egypt with our hopeless slavery to sin apart from Christ. We are hopeless to save ourselves, nor can the right human leader or the right circumstances save us. God alone is able to save us from our slavery and bondage to sin. Israel had surely groaned for some time, but groaning or wallowing in our troubles does little to bring about true change. It does little to bring us to God. What made the difference and what became the decisive moment was that their crying out became a prayer that went up to God. And they were not just crying out and being brutally honest with God about their misery. It says they cried out to God, two important words, for help. And they're crying out, there is an acknowledgement, a belief that God could and would help them. There is crying out to God, but it was for help. By crying out for help in their prayer, they recognized probably the two most important features that define who God really is. They recognized that He is a personal God. He not only hears, but He cares. Second, in asking for God's help, they recognized that He is able to help. He is all-powerful. Our culture today would tell us that if God is personal, He can't be all-powerful because there's too much pain in the world and he wouldn't let it happen. Or if he is really all-powerful, he cannot be personal because he would care and he would intervene. But this is not a biblical view of God. Our culture seeks a definition of God that is tame and completely understandable. But God is incomprehensible and anything but tame. And as I was reflecting on these truths that stood out from the scriptures to me, An illustration from the fictional book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, came to mind. Many of you are maybe familiar with that book or that movie, Um, but if you're not, uh, there are four children that enter through a magical wardrobe into a land of Narnia. And that land, that land of Narnia, this magical land, is under a spell that is controlled by the white witch who is evil. 
But she's not the true ruler of that land. There's another true ruler of that land, and his name is Aslan. He's a lion. And this, these four children, they meet a family of beavers that are telling them about who Aslan is. We'll, we'll pick it up here, a few lines from the book. Um, it says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. That's the beaver speaking. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. God is good, but he's not safe. He's, he's all-powerful. He's holy. He's transcendent. And the Bible again and again reaffirms that God is both personal, or you could say imminent. He is with us. And that he is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is transcendent. His will and purposes are beyond our complete understanding. The Israelites, recognizing that God is both personal and all-powerful, cry out to him, recognizing that he hears and cares, and that he's able to do something about their situation. So I would ask you, do you believe that God is both personal and all-powerful? Again, because our culture has so attacked God's true character, we must ask if we believe God to be as the Bible really displays Him to be. If we don't, it will affect our relationship with Him negatively in a multitude of ways. I would also ask us, do we cry out to God for help or do we trust in our own ability to fix things? Do we think that our problems would be fixed if different politicians were in power or if my spouse changed, or if we made more money, or we had a different job, or, or we could break some habit or addiction by ourselves. All of those things could be exactly like we'd want them to be, and we would still find ourselves both discontented and on our way to hell if we don't have Christ. God alone saves and provides contentment. So much about our earthly existence is coming to realize that for the first time at salvation— and then realizing it again and again every day as we struggle with our sinful flesh. God alone saves, and God alone provides contentment. So we've seen that we must cry out to God for help because our cries go up to Him, and He hears. He is personal, and He is all-powerful. And the next thing we see in the passage is that we must cry out to God for help because He remembers His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 24 tells us, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, God had not forgotten his covenant with his people. It was not as if he, he would need to be remembered, um, and the people did that for him. They helped jog his memory. That's not the case at all, actually. Uh, one commentator has said, the prayers of the people of God have such a key role to play that the Bible can make it clear only by speaking of it in terms we can understand. It therefore depicts the unforgetting God as though he were capable of forgetting and depicts our prayers as having the marvelous effect of causing him to remember. This passage really displays the mystery of prayer, which is that God's purposes are fixed and inflexible, Yet at the same time, our prayers matter and make a difference. Again, how prayer works exactly is a mystery, but we know that it does work and that Scripture commands us to pray. 
the best way we can be sure to be effective in prayer is to pray to God what we already know God's will to be. Israel undoubtedly knew of God's covenant that had been made with their forefathers and therefore with them too, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Although they certainly knew of God's covenant promises, the scripture does not specifically tell us that the Israelites prayed for God to remember and fulfill his covenant. However, it is clear that God does act because he remembers his covenant. Because God remembering his covenant is central to him acting on behalf of his people, it is pretty important that we review what the covenant is and understand how it is functioning here in the story. From Genesis 12 to 17, God gives detail and formalizes his covenant with Abraham and his offspring. In covenant, God solidifies his relationship with his people by making a commitment of the highest order. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 tells us these things, and you can see the promises of God in, in these scriptures. Let's, I'll read them for us. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So let's work through this um, passage together and think about how some of these promises were lining up with the current state of Israel or what the probable mindset of the Israelites might have been. So how is God doing in regard to his covenant promises? First, uh, Abraham had become a great nation. That was promised. So check, that one's true. That's promises fulfilled. Uh, Next, Abraham and his offspring had been blessed in many ways and had a great name, though I'm not, or had a name, though I'm not sure if we can say that it was great. So for that promise, we'll say that it's in process, but it goes downhill for them from there. Um, God promised that Abraham and his offspring were to be a blessing. Is that really happening? No. God promised that those who blessed Abraham would be blessed and those who dishonored him and his offspring would be cursed. Uh, No, that's certainly not happening, since it seems like the Egyptians are being blessed and Israel is being cursed. Finally, are all the families of the earth being blessed through Abraham and his offspring? Certainly not. So what God has promised in his covenant is not matching Israel's current reality at this point. But all these things had been promised to Abraham and his offspring and received by faith. So God remembers that he has promised these things, and God acts to keep his promises. So again, here is the mystery of prayer. Did God act to redeem Israel because they cried out to him for help? Or did God act to redeem Israel because he, he had made promises to Israel? Of course, the answer is yes and yes. It is both and. It is not either or. God was acting because he's a faithful God, and he was acting because the people of Israel were crying out to him and asking for help. So we see that we are to relate to God, and God relates to us through his covenant promises. God responding to Israel was based on him being faithful to his covenant promises. Israel's pleading with God had much to do with what they knew was promised to them, but not yet fulfilled. This, in part, is why it's so important that we study the Old Testament and understand the promises of God in the Old Testament. Helps us to see who God is, how we relate to Him, and helps us understand Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that for all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God in the Old Testament. So we can't treasure and appreciate Christ. We can't even fully understand His person and work without understanding the Old Testament and the development of the covenants of the Old Testament. So I hope that we're motivated by this to study the Old Testament. And I also said a couple of minutes ago that the best way that we can be sure to be effective in prayer is to pray to God what we already know God's will to be. His will has already been revealed to us in the Bible. We know little, if, if any, of God's will concerning our circumstances, where I should work, where I should live, you know, what I should eat for lunch after this. Um, but we know very, very much of God's will concerning how we are to live and be transformed by Him. We know that we are to love others, to be patient, forgiving, and kind. We know that we are to seek Him first and treasure Him above all. We know that His will is to conform us to the image of His Son and make us ready to live with Him forever. So these are things that we know we can pray, and God will be faithful to answer. When we pray His revealed will back to Him, again, we can be confident He will answer. It seems implicit that Israel's crying out was based on what God had revealed of his will, his covenant promises. We too are to cry out based on God's revealed will, namely the new covenant that he saves all who turn to Christ in repentance and faith and the promise that he will be with his people. So we have seen that we must cry out to God for help because he hears our prayers and because he remembers his covenant. Now we see that we must cry out to God for help because he knows and he acts. Verse 25 simply says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. It's a bit intriguing, isn't it? God knew. What does that word, what does that mean exactly? God knew. First, it's helpful for us to know that the Hebrew word that's used here is a bit tricky to translate. The difficulty of doing translation is that sometimes other languages don't have the exact equivalent of what the word had meant in the original language. To use the word know or what God knew as the ESV does is certainly a faithful translation, but I think it's helpful to expound this word a little bit to get the full idea of the passage. So first it does mean a registration of the facts. God knew the facts of the situation. He was fully aware of them. But perhaps more importantly, this word know communicates a sense of intimacy. In the Old Testament, knowing someone implies an intimate relationship. And it's often used for the most, most intimate of human relationships. For instance, that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, Genesis 4.1. God's knowing of us is an intimate knowledge that we can't even fully understand. So when God knows his people who have trusted in his covenant promises by faith, it is not a remote or a merely objective acquaintance. It is deeply personal and caring. So when this passage says God knew, it means that he related to Israel in an intimate, personal, loving way that could not help but take action. He was remembering his covenant toward his people that entails as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, one of my favorite phrases, it entails a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, 
always and forever love. So while the ESV faithfully translates that God, quote, knew, other um, ways that you could phrase it would be took notice of them or was concerned about them. So God knows or takes notice or is concerned, but it is tied with action. The love of God, whether directly from God or through his people, is always manifested in action. God doesn't say he loves us and then remain passive, just as we cannot say we're his children and we love and remain passive either. Of course, the action begins to be taken right away in chapter 3, as God calls Moses at the burning bush, and his plan of redemption for Israel from Egypt begins to become obvious. So I ask, do you understand that if you are God's child through faith, that he knows you in this intimate sort of way, that he notices you and is concerned for you? I think being intimately known is a scary thing for most of us, if we're honest. And I was reminded of this uh, recently through a really great book on prayer. The author said, we don't like God too close especially if God is a deity we can't control. We have a primal fear of walking with God in the garden, naked, without clothing. We desperately want intimacy, but when it comes, we pull back, fearful of a God who's too personal, too pure. We're much more comfortable with God at a distance. But a praying life opens itself to an infinite, searching God. It was convicting for me to see that though I say I want God close, sometimes I actually don't because it's too uncomfortable. Yet he desires this sort of intimacy with us, even though it can be somewhat fearful for us. Israel was intimately known by God, and so are we if we're God's children through faith. If God knew Israel so intimately, it is appropriate that they would cry out, to him being honest and vulnerable. He desires that we would cry out to him for help, as Israel did. The sort of crying out for help that Israel seemed to make and that God desires for us is a real, raw, honest sort of crying out. While it might seem foreign and strange for us to be real, raw, and honest with God, we know it's God's desire for us because he has given us these sort of model prayers in his word. They're called, as Craig mentioned earlier, laments. And there are many of the prayers in the Psalms. Although we didn't read the entire Psalm, Psalm 6, in our worship, um, I'd like to briefly read it now just to give us a better sense of what a lament is and maybe how Israel was crying out here, being real raw and honest with God. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. 
The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. A lament has been often called a prayer of disorientation. Someone has said about laments that there are times that we feel tremendously perplexed or utterly forsaken or paralyzed by fear or overwhelmed with anger or lost in despair. And as such, during these times, God wants us to lament to Him. Laments give us permission and show us how to let tears flow. God wants us to lament to Him, to cry out to Him for help, as Israel did. Again, we know this because of the laments that are in the Scripture, but also because He rebukes His people for not lamenting. In Jeremiah, as God is beginning to communicate His judgment against Israel for their waywardness and idolatry, He brings an indictment against them because they had not lamented. This is what it says in Jeremiah 2, 5-8. through 8. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land, to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. In our passage, Israel cries out. They're basically saying, where are you, Lord? And this for them is an expression of faith. To say that. But later Israel would fail to cry out, Where are you, Lord? during Jeremiah's time. So the people are being rebuked for not crying out to God, for not being real, raw, and honest. And lament is an often neglected way of praying to God, but He has given it to us for our good and in relationship with Him. He doesn't want our relationship with Him to be clouded by pretense. He already knows us as we truly are. We can't fake or hide anything from Him. He wants us to have this type of posture before Him. No faking, no hiding, no worrying about saying the right words. Sometimes we might think that if we interact with God in this sort of a way, that we won't be giving Him the respect that He deserves. But isn't it actually more disrespectful to someone if we're dishonest with them or even two-faced. Most of us struggle to um, be before God without pretense. I know that I do. I think most of us, again, struggle in this way. But someone has gone before us that was real, raw, and honest with God the Father, yet without sin. This person, he asked, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But yet he said, your will be done not my will. When God's will was done, when Jesus absorbed God's wrath towards sin, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was real. He was raw. He was honest. His crying out to God the Father is an indispensable part of his suffering and our salvation. Israel, as God's son, who cried out for rescue and was heard and saved, 
points toward Christ, God's Son, who cried out, and God responded. Jesus fulfilled Israel's function as God's Son. Israel was a type that was fulfilled in Christ. In fact, in Exodus 4.22, it says this. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, Sorry, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. God's son, Israel, lamented, and God responded. They were his beloved son. God, the Father, is loving and attentive. He does respond. God's son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, lamented, and God responded by bringing to completion the redemption which is planned before the foundation of of the world by raising Christ from the dead. We, as God's children, are to lament, to cry out to God for His help, to yearn for the complete fulfillment of the new covenant, when everything will completely and finally be put under God's rule and reign. Having already sent Christ for His first appearing, which we celebrate Christmas, Advent, we know that He will bring to completion all that he has promised when he comes again. So we begin to transition to partake of the Lord's Supper. I would invite you to first cry out to God to pray a prayer of lament if he would lead you, to be real, raw, and honest with him, maybe in a way that you haven't before, maybe about something particular that you have not before. I invite you to verbalize to him the ways that life has been bitter or is bitter now. But as you cry out to him, ask him for help. Acknowledge that he is personal. He is all-powerful. Ask him to intervene because he can. Ask him to be faithful to the covenant promises that he has given his covenant people in his word. That he will save us. That he will be with us, those of us who repent and trust in Christ. For some of us here, this could be crying out for help for the very first time for the very first time in repentance and trusting him in faith for salvation. Yet as we lament, let us ask boldly for help, placing confidence in God that he hears and will act. He is both personal and all-powerful. And also let us give praise to him in thanksgiving as we look toward the celebration of his appearing at Christmas. God himself, personal and all-powerful, came into our world. He entered this mess to redeem humanity, to redeem all who trust in him. Though we have been captive to sin and death, he has ransomed us if we have placed our faith in him. Though we at times are lonely exiles, he has come near and is bringing us home to himself. Though we have fallen under death's dark shadows, he puts them to flight. So let us cry out to God for help, because our cries go up to Him and He hears, because He remembers His covenant, because God knows and acts. And God uses passionate, humble, desperate prayer to accomplish redemption and bring about His purposes. He did so with Israel, He did so with Christ, and continues to do so with Christ, and He still desires to do so today with us, his children, as we are united to Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for who you are. Thank you that you are God of redemption. It's what your whole word communicates, that you save, and you do so through Jesus, your Son. Lord, we thank you that you remembered your covenant to Israel, and in your sovereign timing, you brought them out from under slavery. Thank you that you heard their prayer when they cried out to you for help. Lord, help us to be people that not just groan or complain, but Lord, we, we look to you in faith amidst things that are bitter in our life, and we say help, and we trust you in faith because you are personal, you care for us, and because you're powerful, you can change. And sometimes you elect not to change circumstances. Sometimes it's just our heart that needs to be changed, that needs to be humbled, needs to be made desperate for you. So we pray, we pray that you would help us to lament to you now, but regularly in life when we experience bitterness, that we would experience that sort of intimacy with you that you desire to, to have us experience, that we'd be real raw and honest, that we'd be, be before you unashamed, Lord, and just continue to look to you in faith. Thank you that you did send Jesus at Christmas time to redeem a broken world. His kingdom has become established on earth and is growing. Yeah, we look forward to his second advent when he will return and complete his rule and reign. We pray as we transition to communion, Lord, that you would Help us to continue to worship. Help us to cry out to you for help. Help us to be a humble and broken people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we transition to the time of partaking of the Lord's Supper together, I'd ask the servers to go ahead and, and come on up. Hopefully our heart has been made ready through worship and through hearing God's word, but I would also like to read from Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. I pray this helps us, our hearts, to be even more prepared for partaking of the Lord's Supper together. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is his light. He wants us to come to him and receive his rest. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we receive instruction about the Lord's Supper from the Apostle Paul. And it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we turn now to partake of the Lord's Supper together, um, just a couple of reminders in terms of the way that we do it here. Uh, we would ask you to hold the elements uh, as they're passed, to hold them until you're prompted to partake of them. We'll all uh, take them at the same time. And the second thing would be that you don't have to be uh, an official member of this church, this particular church, to partake of communion. But uh, we would ask that you would be a part of God's family, the global church, through repentance and faith in Him. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that you established by your blood. That's what we celebrate as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Even looking back to the covenant you made with Abraham. In your grace, you remember that covenant to redeem your people in the Old Testament, the Israelites from slavery. And now, Lord, living on this side in the new covenant, we rejoice in the grace that you offer to us. That you redeem, you rescue all those who repent and place their faith in Christ. And you give us the Holy Spirit, you're with all who are your children. So we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. And that you are, are our God and that we are your people. Bring us near to you now pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to leave you with a few verses from Acts, uh, chapter 2, starting verse 37. And this is um, the, procla- the proclamation of the new covenant, salvation in Christ. It says, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let us go out today remembering that our God is a God that we can and should cry out to for help, and that he saves. And let us then proclaim this message for all who are far off. Maybe that's a neighbor or a family member who is far from him, but also far off in terms of unreached people, where there's no gospel presence for them. Let us go out treasuring the promise for uh, life and salvation we have in Christ and the new covenant, and proclaim that to a world that desperately needs the hope of Christmas. You're dismissed. Go in peace.